0: Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. And what you will hear briefly is our intro from Dr. Santosh, who is currently biocontained due to technical difficulties. And this week we are very fortunate to have our guest with us, Dr. Angela Hewlett, who is now the current medical director of the Nebraska Biocontainment Unit. Dr. Hewlett served as the associate medical director from 2009 to 2016, and previously worked in infection control with a interest in bone and joint infections, which she has now shifted over to biocontainment. So welcome, Dr. Hewlett. Thank you very Hewlett. much. It's good to be here. Before we start going into all these things, I'm going to ask what seems like the most obvious question. What is a biocontainment unit?
1: A biocontainment unit is a facility that's capable of caring for patients with highly hazardous communicable diseases. And so these are diseases that are not typically cared for in a, a regular healthcare setting, regular hospital, regular ICU. And the, there are some differences between a biocontainment unit and a, a regular hospital setting, um, some of those are engineering differences, things like uh, negative pressure within the entire unit, special staff that are charged, and uh, we, you know, with caring for patients with these highly hazardous diseases, you know, special waste disposal capabilities, etc. So, what really sets a biocontainment unit apart from a regular hospital setting is the staff, and it's those healthcare workers that have um, have volunteered to take care of these types of patients in in this type of environment.
0: How is this different maybe in some ways from a standard ICU where we have isolation rooms or maybe wear a little bit of mask is the protective gear different? Is the room setup different?
1: Sure. What, yeah. Yeah. I would unique? say all, all of the above actually. Um, you know, the, the setup of the room may be different. For instance, in our room, we actually have, so our, our rooms are all negative pressure. Um, so as opposed to our, say, our bone marrow transplant unit, where we're trying to keep keep our patients safe from germs on the outside, we're actually trying to keep our germs on the inside. And so all of our rooms in our unit are equipped with negative pressure settings, which are digitally monitored. Um, but not only do we have that, our rooms are negative to the hallway, which is negative to the corridor outside. Our rooms are, are essentially concrete boxes. They don't share air with the adjacent rooms or with the rest of the hallway or, or anything like that, which is also very different. You know, our walls are painted with ultraviolet reflective paint, so that which helps with our decontamination strategy. So there are a lot of physical differences for sure. And then the other difference, as you mentioned, is the equipment that our healthcare workers wear in that, um, in that we have varying stages of personal protective equipment, depending on the pathogen and the risk to the healthcare worker. Uh, so for instance, we have uh, powered air purifying respirators or PAPRs that are readily available. Those are, those are kind of the mainstay of our personal protective equipment.
0: UV reflective paint, how does that work? Are Are the lights in the room UV and this just bounces around to sterilize or decontaminate? Yeah, so that's, everything? A, that's a
1: great question. Actually, in some level four laboratories, they actually do have UV lighting that is part of their decontamination strategy. Our paint is a little bit different. And we actually based this on a research study that we conducted in our facility where um, we evaluated rooms without UV reflective paint versus our room with the paint to determine the amount of kill that we could get on, on uh, pathogens in the environment. And what we do is part of our, our decontamination strategy involves bringing in several uh, ultraviolet uh, light generators after uh, after we do a surface clean. And so when we do that, then we set up these generators in the room. And the problem with ultraviolet light, it only can kill what it can see. And so the reflective paint actually helps to get some of those surfaces that are not necessarily within the direct pathway of the UV generators. And so, yeah, we found it to be useful and we ended up painting our rooms with the UV reflective paint.
0: I, I'm almost picturing kind of a college dorm room <laughs> psychedelic <laughs> job so you can get under the beds and and into those far corners. Yeah, something like that.
1: <laughs> um, how
0: did you first get interested or involved in biocontainment. Systems. Yeah. So,
1: so actually, uh, when I was in training as a infectious diseases fellow and actually during my residency as well, I did my training at University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston, which has a level four laboratory that deals with pathogens like Ebola and, and other things. And so I became interested in biopreparedness during my fellowship. I actually had kind of a long standing interest in Ebola and other, other emerging infectious diseases. It dates back to some of my, my reading material in college. And when I Came to Nebraska for my interview. I'm the medical director of the biocontainment unit, Dr. Phil Smith, was also division director of infectious diseases, and so he was giving me a tour and and took me into the biocontainment unit. And he said, "I need a partner um, who wants to work with me in this unit." And I think my first my first reaction was just like, "I can't believe that this is here. This is an amazing facility. And how does no one know about this?" And you know, I'd never heard of of Nebraska having this this type of unit, and so. So yeah, I agreed right away. I thought that that was a really exciting prospect. And so I actually began my career here in Nebraska, uh, being associate medical director of the biocontainment unit.
0: You've mentioned a couple times level four laboratories with regards to UV light and infections. What is a level four agent or laboratory? Do the levels go lower, higher? Should I be more worried about a level one or a level five?
1: Sure. Well, um, so there's no level five, but but it goes from level one to level four. And for example, a level one would be something like a, a high school microbiology lab. You know where you're dealing. You may be dealing with some microorganisms, but they're things that are treatable with antibiotics or you know sort of easily dealt with. Um, a level two lab would be something like um, like your your general labs at a hospital, where you definitely are dealing with infectious diseases. You know um, bloodborne pathogens and other things, but they're things that with standard precautions in the laboratory you can protect the laboratorians uh, without you know enhanced protective equipment a uh, level 3 laboratory is a laboratory that deals with pathogens that may may be more hazardous to to the laboratorians um things like you know for instance uh q fever or tularemia diseases like that that although they have antibiotic treatments uh, can definitely infect laboratorians when they're doing their work and so level 3 labs actually are usually specialized labs that are part uh, generally of health departments is how um how many of the labs function state health departments and they are dealing with pathogens again that are you know that are a little more more hazardous for the laboratorians and so they wear enhanced uh, protective equipment as compared to the standard precautions that are generally taken in the um, in a regular hospital lab and then the upper echelon of that laboratory level 4 labs and those are Those are labs that actually have pathogens inside that need to be in high containment. So things like Ebola, a loss of fever, a smallpox is a level four pathogen. So these are generally diseases that um, that are either very difficult to contain in one way or the other, so highly hazardous, Uh, highly infectious, maybe there's no vaccine or no known therapy. And so these are labs that are very specialized. And uh, for instance, the Centers for Disease Control has one of these laboratories. The uh, military has a laboratory in Fort Detrick, Maryland, uh, USAMRID, that processes these types of specimens. And also that my home institution, the University of Texas had a level four laboratory. So this requires a lot of specialized training, specialized personal protective equipment meant to deal with these, these hazardous pathogens and make sure and protect the laboratorians.
0: Your biocontainment unit has 10 beds, which is the largest count of the four biocontainment facilities in the U.S. I I also recall that it's on the seventh floor of a retrofitted building. Is that the top floor? Is it the furthest from everyone? Or what was kind of the thought process? Or was it just that's the floor you had available?
1: Well, some of both, I guess. At the time, this was a a unit uh, that was operating as a pediatric Uh, bone marrow transplant unit. And the beauty of this unit is retrofitted. So this is not something that we we built purposefully, um, although we were able to retrofit it uh, quite a bit to meet our purposes. This is a unit that is somewhat separated from the rest of the medical facility. It also has its own air handling system, which is very different than, say, a regular hospital where, you know, you may have the same air handler for multiple patient rooms, multiple floors, Uh, Whereas this actually has its own air handling system. And so we're able to contain our air and not share air with the rest of the facility. We want to be close to our medical center because we want to make sure that if we need supplies or staffing or things like it works nicely for us, we're able to have those resources that we need on campus while maintaining some degree of separation from the rest of the, the healthcare facility.
0: How does that work when you're bringing in patients with these highly infectious diseases that you have to bring them through the hospital? How do patients and staff get into the unit?
1: We have specialized transport mechanisms for that that we're able to clear you know the the hallways um, we use areas uh, within the hospital that are less tra- highly trafficked things like that. And we also use specialized personal protective equipment as well as some specialized equipment for the patient that is able to contain the patient in case there is a spill of some sort, um, you know, whether that be bodily fluids or et cetera during the transport. So we have a very um, well-established, kind of well-mapped and well-practiced protocol for transporting patients into the biocontainment unit from the outside.
0: So we learned in in a previous episode when we talked about Ebola, about personal protective equipment for the physician, but you're telling me there's also personal protective equipment for the patient?
1: In our transports in 2014, and, and actually the other healthcare centers that cared for Ebola patients as well, it really depended on how the patient was doing. If the patient was able to, to stand up, you know, with some assistance, we actually practiced what I would call somewhat of a reverse isolation in that we put the patient in their own personal protective equipment. So a suit, uh, you know, mask while they were being transported, because you don't know what's going to happen during transport, even if it's a short from a, you know, a, a loading dock into the unit you're still dealing with the five minutes. And and again, sometimes these patients, you you don't know. You don't know what's going to happen. And so you have to be prepared for lots of situations. We do have some other specialized equipment, something that uh, we call a isolation unit or an isopod, which is actually a a HEPA-filtered Uh, kind of large uh, isolation bubble that we actually can place the patient in as well during transport. But we typically reserve that for patients that are unable to cooperate for one reason or the other. Maybe they're, you know, they're too sick. They they can't uh, be helped into a wheelchair or a stretcher or things like that. And so we have several different levels of transportation practices that we use depending on the status of the patient.
0: I find it fascinating that you actually have a way to turn folks into pod people uh, just <laughs> just to protect them. It sounds like you have a lot of training and and drills you have to run through. How do you prepare the staff? What kind of drills do you undergo to maintain readiness to bring people in? Because you've only had about three patients in the unit since its opening. Is that accurate?
1: That is accurate.
0: So how do you get ready for something that you've never experienced before, you know, up until those patients started showing up, what did you do?
1: Yeah. So that's, that's a great question. And I can tell you that that's one that, that we hear a lot. What did you do between 2005 and 2014? And, and I think maintenance of preparedness for, you know, caring for these types of patients is hugely important because you want to keep your, you know, your staff engaged. Number one, Um, you also want to keep them uh, prepared and aware of all the protocols and things like that. So that takes quite a bit of effort Um, You know, we have a variety of drills and exercises that, you know, to keep our staff engaged and then ready as simple as putting on and taking off personal protective equipment versus, you know, things on like procedures. How do you intubate a patient who has Ebola or something along those lines? Do you, you know, how do you clean up spills? How do you, I mean, there, there are a variety of, of procedures. We even have, you know, procedures for man down in the room, which means your healthcare worker is down. So, you know, you're, you're in a room and personal protective equipment for a long period of time, there's a possibility someone could have a syncopal episode. And if that happens, how do you get that healthcare worker safely out of the room and decontaminate them so that they're able to, you know, to get medical care if necessary. So we have a lot of those types of things that are, that are exercises that we we do very frequently. And then on top of that, then we will have full scale drills, which involve things like mock transport of a patient, from, you know, into the unit. So that could be a real person or a, a modified person, I guess I could call it a, uh, uh, you know, a pod, a, person. A, a pod person, something like that. Yeah, no, we, we have quite a few very sophisticated models of all sorts of individuals from pregnant ladies to everything else. You know, so again, we, we actually will drill then the transfer of that patient into the unit, the medical care of that patient. We've had drills regarding research protocols. How do you uh, consent a patient for a research medication maybe that we need to administer when you're inside of personal protective equipment and how How do you transmit the the signature out to the? I mean, all these things are are things that actually need to be practiced. And so so we do a fair amount of that. We've had some very high level drills with um, both civilian and military partners where we actually transfer a patient from another medical facility into our facility or uh, even gone so far as to have a full scale transport where we had patients who were flown from Africa on specialized transport. Uh, planes. And the drill was, you know, let's bring this patient to Nebraska and let's actually bring them into the unit using our emergency medical services, our healthcare workers, you know, kind of the full the full effect. And let's have our nurses and physicians care for this patient for a period of time. It can get quite sophisticated. And I can tell you our, our nurses, especially here, have become very, very good at injecting interesting things into some of these drills, things like, you know, spill cleanup. Um, we use a lot of, oh, I don't know, uh, chili and... <laughs> uh, chicken soup, (laughs) things like that on the floor, which, you know, they'll, they'll put in something like that. And the healthcare worker has to be able to respond in real time. So they can get really interesting, but I can tell you that's, that's what keeps our staff engaged and, and what keeps us, you know, on our toes. What are
0: some of these other things like chicken soup or chili that get injected into the training drills?
1: (laughs) Well, the chicken soup would simulate, you know, I mean, various bodily secretions, obviously we have things like, you know, how do you, how do you put in an IV? How do you put in a central venous catheter in these patients. These are all things that, you know, that we need to, to know how to do before it actually happens. And so there was actually a recent drill where one of the injects was, you know, when we were consenting the patient for an experimental product and, oh, the pregnancy test came back positive. And how does that modify your consent? And how does that change your decision to use this experimental product? And that was all stuff that was thrown at us without our, our knowledge in the room. So, so again, very, um, you know, very kind of keep you on your toes type of stuff. You know, sometimes we're involved in the planning as well, uh, we being the medical directors, um, as opposed to the nursing staff, all of our, you know, all of our team is essentially involved in the in some way in the development of these exercises. Um, you know, and a lot of they're they're simulating real life experiences often, uh, you may not necessarily know what type of clinical curveball you'll be. You'll so be what's
0: a, a worst case scenario, you're dealing with these highly infectious sort of units, what happens if there is a breach? Or is there another scenario that's even more worst case than that?
1: Well, the when caring for patients, worst case scenario, definitely, you know, is a breach in one way or the other. And whether that's a breach in personal protective equipment, knocking on the proverbial wood right now, um, we have not had something like that occur, luckily. But we do train and part of our exercise and uh, and drill schedule actually does include, as I mentioned, things like you know, like provider down or, um, you know, a breach in PPE, what happens if you nick your glove, you know, what do you do? So we have uh, separate protocols for all of those things. You know, if you're if you have a breach in PPE, how do you how do you get out of that room? And how do you get, you know, decon safely? And so yeah, we we definitely have, you know, have worst case scenario protocols, because I think that's important. Really, if you think about worst case scenario for, um, you know, for a biocontainment unit, or frankly, a healthcare system, it would actually be a an airborne pathogen with no vaccine, no treatment options and a high mortality rate. So something like, um, you know, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome or, um, you know, avian influenza, things like that.
0: How do you recruit? Does everybody come from infectious disease or, you know, how do you select the staff that work with you in this unit?
1: A couple different selection processes. One is for our nursing staff, and all of our healthcare workers are volunteers. And so we distinctly make that the case in our unit based on the fact that we, number one, have not had an issue with recruitment. And we've been able to to recruit and maintain our you know a, a full staff using uh, volunteers. But also, we, we really want people who are, want to work in the unit. We don't want to compel people. We actually recruit nurses from all over the hospital. So not just ICU nurses, although we have a fair amount. We also have nurses from the emergency department. We have labor and delivery nurses, you know, God forbid, there could be a pregnant patient, which for an internist sounds like a nightmare, <laughs> you know, it definitely could happen. So we have L&D nurses, we have nurse uh, pediatric nurses, and all, all sorts of places from the hospital. So that actually provides two different assurances. One is we have a varied skill set, um, you know, in our nursing staff. And the other is, is that we're not completely disabling our medical ICU when we're caring for a patient in the biocontainment unit. So, you know, if we took all of our medical ICU nurses away, then obviously we have other sick people in the hospital as well that need to be cared for. And then the physician recruitment is a little bit different in that It is also a volunteer process. Uh, Most of our team consists of infectious diseases specialists and critical care medicine specialists. So um, that's the majority of the team. But we also have other members of the team. We have a nephrologist um, in case we need to run dialysis, which we, we had to do in 2014. The way I look at recruitment of physicians is I want them to want to do this. Um, I want them to have appropriate skill set to do this. So we need people who are able to intubate patients, who are able to put in central lines. And then I want them to be able to work with other people well. When we're recruiting nurses, we talk to their nurse managers, we, you know, discuss their how are you functioning on their regular on your floor, you know, your regular day job, things like that. We kind of do that with physicians too. If I don't know them because I talk to their colleagues, I talk to the nurses who work with them. And I can tell you that nurses in the biocontainment unit who work directly with these physicians in the regular hospital have some veto power over physicians. If you are not ready to take direction from other people, I mean, if you're, you know, you have some sort of an attitude or you're not ready to work in a in a place like our biocontainment unit, we don't want you in there. And then they go through training. It's an invitation thing. I ask them if they would be interested in participating in our team. And so you have a security council.
0: That's that's a very interesting approach. You know, you place such a focus on coming together and group dynamic especially in a unit where people are kind of covered head to toe and personal protective equipment. And really, you don't get any sort of physical contact and everyone's in isolation sets. So what are some of the unique challenges of working in a biocontainment unit?
1: You know, the unit has some unique challenges, but I think that that also stimulates some really unique solutions to those challenges. And that's one of the reasons I really like working in this field is because this is not your day to day job. This is something that presents some opportunities to address, address those challenges. And I, honestly, I, I work with an absolutely amazing team of people in the biocontainment unit. I think that our, our team, they really are able to think outside the box to solve problems. And these problems that occur in the unit would be things that would be easily addressed in a regular hospital setting. So things like disposing of waste or flushing the toilet. I mean, you wouldn't believe the amount of thought that has been put into flushing the toilet in the back unit. And the reason is because that's an aerosol generating procedure. And if you have a a pathogen like Ebola, where, you know, we're talking about a one viral particle with the possibility of infecting at least at least a primate, uh, we don't know in humans exactly, but, you know, highly, highly, highly infectious. And so when, when you're dealing with something like that, you really want to make sure that you're, you know, you're pulling out all the stops to be to be safe. And so something like flushing the toilet, you come up with, well, how do we do that safely? You know, there aren't lids, interestingly, on hospital toilets. So what do you do? You know, do you install a lid? Do you have some, well, what we figured out is that lids have crevices and other things that have to be cleaned. And so interestingly, our solution and the solution of of our nurse. Hold up. What was that?
0: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
1: Actually came up with this is we have a cafeteria tray and I know that sounds crazy and it does to me too, but... This cafeteria tray is non-porous. It's something that we they place over the toilet when they flush it, and then we can wipe it down with a bleach <laughs> wipe afterwards. And we don't put it back in use. We don't send it back to the cafeteria. But that was a, a, a very simple solution to a problem that, that could generate some issues. Flushing a toilet, as I said, generates aerosol that's of danger to the healthcare workers. Um, you know, we also instill a, a disinfectant in the toilet and allow for a 10-minute dwell time. Because if you think about it, if you have a pipe burst in the hospital somewhere and you, it happens to be, you know, downstream of the Ebola patient, we're going to have some serious concerns from our maintenance staff. And we, and we had those in 2014. We definitely had people calling saying, what happens if a pipe bust, you know, what do we need to do? And so we had to come up with a, with another assurance to, you know, to try to make sure that, you know, but that by the time we, we disposed of the waste that it was safe. So simple things like that, you know, become challenges in the biocontainment unit. But I, I think that's one of the great things about working there is it brings is some a whole of new in a meaning to ways. the
0: term silent but deadly. What other sort of unique <laughs> challenges aside from toilet flushing, which I never would have imagined, do you have to handle in the unit?
1: You mentioned earlier that there is a challenge in that we're all in personal protective equipment and often, you know, as opposed to on a regular patient floor where you can interact with the patient and their family members and the patient can have visitors and things like that. The unit is definitely a, a different you know, a different type of environment and that they won't have face-to-face visitors, the patient won't, you know, they, they are visited obviously by healthcare workers who are in full gear and, and look a bit alien, you know, at times. And so how do you bond with your patient? How do you assure them that you're, you know, that you're providing the best patient care, you know, patient care possible? All you can see are their eyes. (laughs) Some very, you know, very interesting things that that brings about as far as that, you know, that patient provider bond. And so, we, we did some interesting things in the unit to try to combat that as well. I mean, number one, when our patients arrived, we actually gave them a, um, a sheet that had pictures of the staff <laughs> that was going to take care of them, regular pictures, not in PPE, and a little bit of bio, you know, and said, this is who I am, by the way. You know, I'll tell you what, when you if you have Ebola or any other terrible disease and you're brought into a care environment, especially if you're flown from somewhere else, as all of our patients were, I would imagine that, you know, that, that first couple of days at least can, and you're sick, you know, I mean, it, it can be really difficult, I think, to to kind of grasp, you know, what's going on and who are these people and why are they wearing all this stuff and, you know, that kind of thing. We really went out of our way to, you know, to try to reassure the patient by at least introducing ourselves in a reasonable way. And then from there, finding out things about the patient, you know, talking to them, you know, what do you like to do? You know, what type of things do you do on, on the outside? Do you like sports? Do you like watching movies? You know, things like that. And what we'd actually try to do then is to to do those things with the patient in our environment. So we've got some really great photos of our nurses playing chess with one of our patients and, and they're in full gear. But you know what? Um, chess is a long game, actually, if you're, you're hanging out in a biocontainment unit waiting for your viral load to decrease. And that's something that, that took up some time. And you know, our patient, we actually brought in an exercise bike and allowed our patients to physical therapy, you know, with bands and exercise bike and things like that. We installed a, a basketball hoop, as did a, a couple of the other institutions <laughs> in the United States, and let the patient, you know, shoot from their from their bed, you know, at times. I mean, quite a few things. Here in Nebraska, I mean, we had an interesting circumstance where, you know, obviously football is, is king here in Nebraska, college football. And that's something that I learned really, really quick, although football was big in in Texas, uh, it, there's absolutely nothing like, like the dedication of the fans to the, the Nebraska Huskers. And so our patients all came from other places. And in particular, one of our patients uh, was, you know, they were here during, during football season. And so on a, a weekend, um, I, uh, went out and bought a two shirts, uh, two Nebraska Husker football shirts. Um, one of which I brought to him in the unit and one of which I saved for later after he got out of the unit so he could take it home. And we have this great photo of our patient wearing his Nebraska Husker shirt, eating nachos and watching a game on on the weekend because we said, you know, you're in Nebraska now. You got to be watching football on Saturday. Our nurses were were wonderful about, you know, really bringing the patient things like, you know, one of our nurses brought homemade chicken soup. I mean, we just we just did a lot of things to try to get to know our patients really well. And I think that contributes a huge amount to the recovery process and especially After, you know, after these sort of acute illness is over, when you're sick, all this stuff is, you know, is sometimes difficult to do. But when the patients start to recover, normally in a regular hospital, they'd be out in the hallway walking with their IV pole or visiting with family or, you know, things like that. And unfortunately, they're unable to do that in our facility. And so the way that we try to enhance the recovery process is to do some of these things to try to make them feel like they're getting better, and they're able to talk with family members. We have a access system that allows them to communicate back and forth with family members from inside the unit. Even those things can become a big challenge, but we definitely want to get to know our patients and want to.
0: So the know, very first time you said from 2005 to around 2014, there was a lot of preparedness and drills, and then you got your very first Ebola patient. What was that like for you? I mean, how how did it feel to kind of really start putting things into practice? Are there things you would have done differently. What was that experience?
1: It's really what we had been preparing for the whole time. So we were visited by the U.S. Department of State, as was um, several facilities around the United States. And And they were to determine readiness. And this was in August of 2014. And this was when the Ebola outbreak in Africa was really, really heating up. We'd been watching this closely. We knew that there was a possibility that we could receive a patient, whether they traveled from Africa on their own and showed up in emergency department, which is how we thought we would initially receive the patient, or um, were air revamped. And it turned out that you know that these patients were actually were healthcare workers who were brought over to you know to the United States for for medical care and that's how we ended up receiving all all three of our patients but when we got the call we it wasn't entirely unexpected just because we we do follow all outbreaks in the, in the world because you know an outbreak in Africa or um you know Saudi Arabia or China or wherever else can easily be here within 24 hours I mean with air travel etc and and so we we monitor these things and we knew that there was a possibility that we could receive a patient. But yeah, I was actually with Phil Smith when uh, when we got the call uh, from the State Department saying there's a patient on the way. And the good news is, is we had a, a day or so of notice because the patient had to be air evac from Africa. But that's exactly what we had been drilling and preparing for. Was I a little anxious? Sure. I think that's normal. Um, was I excited <laughs> in a weird infectious diseases way? Yeah, that too. <laughs> so, you know, we have a facility here that is, is capable of caring for patients with, with these types of diseases. And now we get to use it. <laughs> and so, um, so yeah, I mean, there were, there were definitely some challenges in there. I, I, I think I would be remiss if I didn't, you know, didn't say that there were surprises and things like that, but we were able to address those challenges and surprises. And um, what was and, one of those surprises, and, something and that best y- you hadn't
0: maybe planned for and found out you either were ready for, or gosh, we never actually thought of this, or were there any?
1: there definitely were I, I think the first the major one that and the major modification that we made in between uh, the care of our first and second patient was the laboratory aspect so initially we have our state public health lab here on campus uh, which is a sort of an unusual setup in that um, they're co-located with us here at our academic medical center and so we have the ability to process laboratory specimens in a level 3 laboratory um, you know during uh, during the care of our patient but the the issue was turnaround time. And frankly, you know, when you're caring for a sick patient and you want electrolytes back quickly, you know, you want to know what that potassium is. And especially with patients with Ebola, the, they had major wasting of various electrolytes, potassium, magnesium, et cetera. And so these are things that, you know, that we needed to know. We needed to know in a reasonable time. And it was very difficult actually to, to draw lab, the process of drawing lab, actually getting it out to the unit, transporting it where it needed to go, processing the specimen and then getting that back to us, that result back to us was, was difficult. And so what we actually did is to install a laboratory inside of our biocontainment unit, um, which the public health laboratorians who normally work in our level three lab actually do come over and process the specimens inside of our unit. And so as opposed to walking it somewhere, um, which we don't like doing anyway, we would walk the sample down the hallway and, you know, have results for us very quickly. And that was incredibly important uh, for the care of our patients so that we were able to act on those results. That was something that we did different in between our first and second patient. And, and we had always planned on running a, you know, a small amount of lab test. I think initially in 2014, it was thought that point of care testing was adequate and, you know, we wouldn't have to really do anything else. We wouldn't need to do blood cultures because we'd just give them some antibiotics, things like that. And really that became just not appropriate, you know, when we had the patient in front of us. And so we were able to modify our practices. The other thing that was a bit of a surprise is the amount of waste that's generated by a single patient with Ebola. And this was, you know, was illustrated very readily in our unit and others. Things like bed linens, all of our personal protective equipment, everything that touches the patient or us had to be disposed of. And we were lucky that we had an autoclave in place in our unit at the time, because at least we were able to, you know, to process our waste within the unit. But we had to run that autoclave about 12 hours per day for a single patient, very dramatic amount of waste that's generated from these patients. So those were two of the things.
0: I shudder to imagine what would happen if you had the full... Ten patient unit filled. Would people just have laundry piling up in the corners? Yeah,
1: exactly. I and that was the challenge: is a single patient generating that much waste. How do you deal with multiple patients? And so, one way that we address that challenge is we installed an additional autoclave. So we actually have two now uh, within our unit. But the other thing is, and I, and I I know you mentioned that we are a ten bed unit. We are. We have we have actually five patient care rooms that are double bedded, um, vent capable rooms, and so they're ICU equipped rooms. But they are five separate rooms, not ten. Now, it depends on the pathogen. You know, could we care for some patients with uh, an airborne illness that maybe are not quite as sick? Uh, you know, 10 patients? Sure, we can. And we've done drills actually illustrating that. But could we actually take care of 10 Ebola patients who are ill on ventilators and, you know, dialysis? Absolutely not. And we we are a 10-bed unit technically. But for something like Ebola virus disease, because of the waste stream and the intensity of that care, I would say you know around three beds is really what we have the capability of of doing, and that is analogous to the other units in the United States as well. And You've play, had but, really good uh, Ebola. Uh, I, w- I would say our max I, would I, be three. Luck,
0: skill. I'm not sure of the correct word to use in treating the patients who have come through this unit with two making full <laughs> recoveries. How do you treat somebody who there's no existing drugs or antivirals to give them? Is it just support Supportive care, or what do you do?
1: So supportive care is actually the the key to that. And th- this was this was a, a definite an, an issue. I would say, as a physician, you know, you don't often encounter diseases like this that honestly don't have any any treatment options, <laughs> and there's just not a lot known about about there wasn't at the time, especially you know when we took our first patient in September of 2014. As far as any therapeutic options or any you know any modifications we could make, as far as as treatment goes, that would actually influence outcomes on these patients. And Ebola was discovered in the 70s. And so this is not a it wasn't a new disease. But essentially, it had occurred in areas um, with smaller outbreaks very remote areas that honestly didn't have that capability to provide a significant amount of supported care. So there was really not a lot known about this disease at the time. And it was it was difficult. As a physician, it's hard to look at a very sick patient and say, you know, all I can do is support you. But what we decided to do is to go all out and do everything that we could to take care of the patient. So that could be as simple as IV fluids, monitoring those electrolytes and replacing those as, you know, as needed, Um, nutritional support through, um, through through parenteral nutrition, or, you know, etc, you know, ventilator, if necessary, dialysis, if necessary. So, so really trying to give the patient every possibility of, of recovery, you know, essentially, while their immune system started to react to the virus. That's what we're waiting on because, you know, without any any real treatment options, that's what we were faced with is how do we sort of let this patient ride this out while we support them. We did use experimental products um, with all three of our patients, both convalescent serum as well as experimental products. And that was really based on the best available evidence, which was really not much, uh, but it was essentially, you know, we had lots of conversations with uh, the research community, folks at the FDA, things like that, on which products are actually available and have some promise, promise for, you know, patients with Ebola. So, you know, maybe there have been some primate studies. We used experimental products on all, all three of our patients. You know, in the long run, we know that the survival rate for patients with Ebola here in the United States and other centers in Europe was much, much higher than that of um, of patients in, in West Africa. And we think, though, honestly, we don't know that it was these experimental products. It may very well have been just that we were able to provide that aggressive, supportive care to our patients. But it was a real, a real challenge as a physician to be able to look and see how sick these patients were, and to say, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do everything I can for you. There's not enough known about the treatment of this disease to be able to really give you a guarantee.
0: And how do you handle the deceased if someone dies in the unit? I mean, do does the family get the ashes back, or how, how do you even get them out of a unit? because they're still highly infectious.
1: Right. So we practice protocols for management of deceased patients, because unfortunately, the diseases that we have the potential to deal with in the biocontainment unit are diseases with high mortality rates and often don't have, you know, reasonable therapeutic options. And so, well, fortunately, we had the protocols available. Unfortunately, we actually had to use them uh, with one of our patients, which I can tell you, you know, I, I deal with sick people all the time, as does the rest of our team. And this was absolutely devastating for us. Um, we received our patient very late in the clinical course. There wasn't a whole lot that we could do. We, but in the end, you know, we, we, we couldn't heal him. And it was, it was, as I said, devastating at the time. You know, we were able to help each other through that. And we, you know, we were able to use our our protocol that was pre-established. And that is, how do you manage a deceased patient? How do you get the body out of the, the biocontainment unit to cremation? What do you do with the ashes afterwards? All those things were things that we had already established. And so, you know, we were able to you know, to perform that protocol. And in the end, to give the ashes to the family members, and they appreciated that. And I think that that was the best thing we could do to give some some closure, because it's not, you know, like a, you know, a death that occurs in the regular hospital where you're able to have a viewing or, you know, a a funeral, you know, things like that that are Um, that are sort of, you know, our burial practices here in the United States. And so this was this was different. But we were able to do it to maintain dignity for the patient and his family.
0: Certainly, these are things that we don't get to see every day and just as regular physicians, and certainly not as lay people. If there was someone who wanted to get involved in biocontainment, who after hearing all this, kind of got that same spark that you did, what would you tell them?
1: Sure. Well, if this is, if this person is a healthcare worker, I would probably start with what's going on at your workplace, frankly. Um, there may very well be efforts that people are unaware of. You know, we, we talk about biocontainment units, but in actuality, every hospital really has to be prepared to care for patients with, you know, with hazardous communicable diseases. And, and that's something that biocontainment units are, you know, are important to have. But really, those frontline hospitals and regional hospitals and that sort of thing have to—they have efforts as well that they need to to be aware of, whether that's screening of travelers who are returning or just frankly screening patients in the emergency department. You know, um, these are things that that are all preparedness efforts. And so I would start with you know with what's going on at my institution and hospital infection control is often a place that is. Um, highly involved in preparedness efforts, and so I would I would probably start with them. That being said, there, we also have. We have a regional network hospitals that are capable of caring for patients with these types of diseases, and initially this was just the the small number of biocontainment units, but since then has been expanded to multiple institutions. Uh, we have ten regional centers now that are scattered throughout the United States. The other thing that I I definitely want to emphasize is that there's always an opportunity for volunteerism, um, especially for you know for travel to you know, to countries that are affected by outbreaks. And whether that's Ebola versus plague or other things, as we've seen recently in the news, there are definitely opportunities through various organizations to participate in that way. And I think the real heroes of the Ebola outbreak of 2014, as well as um, many other outbreaks, are those those people, those healthcare workers who actually went to countries um, like Africa or other places and cared for those patients. And you know they they put themselves at risk. They you know were working in often very difficult austere environments. You know to provide care for patients. But but those are the ones who inspire us. And so I would just say anybody who you know, who is interested in in working in preparedness, you know, you can look around at home, but then I would you know, investigate those
0: opportunities. Do you have a favorite travel story or experience that you could share? You know, if someone's just looking for a casual fun getaway, where they maybe won't get Ebola, <laughs> where would you send them? What's what's your favorite travel story?
1: Well, I, I can tell you, I, I love to travel um, for sure. And I, I've been lots of places in the world and I'm always intrigued every time I go to a new place at uh, the culture and just, you know, the things that you can learn from travel. So I'm, I, I have quite a few travel stories, actually. I, I guess I can tell you my my favorite place in the world probably to, to be is Belize and Central America. And I, I've been there multiple times and I can tell you that if you're looking for a very laid back travel experience where the most you have to do that day is get up in the morning and decide when you're going to catch some fish and maybe eat those fish for lunch over a fire kind of thing. Um, that's that's the place to go. I My favorite day uh, in any travel experience is actually doing just that. So getting up in the morning, going out on a boat, you know, catching some yellowtail snapper. I, lo- I love to fish. That's, that's a, a big hobby of mine. And then you Know cooking those fish over the open fire on a deserted beach on a you know an island somewhere, I, I think that you can't get any better than that. And then going snorkeling or diving in the afternoon after you've had your lunch. Um, so I, I I love Belize, I've I've been there many times, as I mentioned, and I think that that's that's one of my my favorite places. I've I've done a lot of fishing in other places, uh, called a, a giant uh Dorado, a mahi mahi, depending on on where you're where you're located in Costa Rica. I, All right. You know, well, thank you so like. much
0: for joining us and sharing this information with us about the biocontainment unit. If people want to find out more about the unit or you, where?
1: <laughs> sure. Well, we have um, a website. Nebraska Medicine actually has a, a website for the biocontainment unit. But in actuality, if really finding out more about preparedness in general and about some of the things that we've done especially since 2014, to enhance preparedness in the United States, I would have people go to the uh, National Ebola Training and Education Center, or NETEC, website, which is www.netec.org, nete And NETEC is actually, and as I was mentioning earlier, the regional centers, the establishment of safety protocols, and um, establishing facilities that are, that are capable of caring for patients with highly hazardous communicable diseases, NETEC has done a lot to improve preparedness in the United States. And there's a lot of resources on that site about, you know, different healthcare institutions, how to get involved, um, things like that. Obviously, the World Health Organization and CDC also have excellent websites. And with uh, regards to different uh, current outbreaks, or th- as far as monitoring purposes, but yeah, I would say the Tech site. As always, we
0: love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. You can reach us on Facebook, on Squarespace, on Twitter, on Patreon, anywhere podcasts are downloaded. We'd love to hear your reviews, your ratings, and we would love for you to support us spiritually, emotionally, and financially. Included in the show notes are a whole bunch of places you can do that. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. This show is produced by me (laughs) with with a lot of help from all my co-hosts and those of you who submit stories. Thank you very much. And until next time, as always, happy travels.
1: Bye, guys.